Previously on Digger, Mora's father Grebe caught up with the kids and told them what was happening back in Ryan. Kai and his risers had overwhelmed the Union's control over the city. He had used footage of Dylan and the kids blowing up part of his building to motivate the people to rise to the surface. While he made preparations for war, Mac and Dylan came clean on their secrets. Mac admitted to bringing treasure from home so that he could plant it for Dylan to find, and Dylan admitted to holding on to the dagger he stole from Kai's penthouse. But it wasn't a dagger. It was a key to Kai's secret weapon, the drum rock. And now for episode 9, The Lower Ones. The Purple Rocket Podcast presents... Digger. Silence filled the cockpit as Grebe's airship and the connected Union ship flew through the darkness of Under-Earth. Grebe had decided to steer the two ships from the garbage ship's cockpit, being more comfortable with its controls. Very little had been said since Dylan had revealed that he had Kai's dagger, or key. Clearly flustered, Grebe had told him to put it away, and then had everyone get back in the ship so they could continue to the volcanoes. They dumped the bucket of wriggling grub into a slimy tank in the ship's storage room, and dropped the big round joppo into the groove set back in the cockpit floor, filling the ship with a spine-tingling warmth. Hanging from the ceiling, crystals clinked into each other with every turn, and glowed brighter the further they went. At first, Dylan just thought he was imagining it. But now he was seeing things in the room that were once hidden in the shadows. From the captain's chair, Grebe steered the ships and studied the crystal map projection of Under-Earth that glowed on a nearby wall, his face sweaty, his eyes alert. Behind him, Dylan stared out the cockpit window into the darkness and thought about what had just happened before their mad dash to take flight. He was still in shock. Could Mac have really set up their treasure hunt just to get him to accept some money? Images of that day filled his mind. The hot sun on his neck as he dug the hole in the baseball field. Mac nonchalantly eating snacks while he worked. Their argument with Laney. Everything. He tried to remember a moment when Mac had attempted to plant the gems while he was digging, but couldn't think of any. How long was he planning on making him dig before he dropped some treasure into the hole? Had he really thought it through, he would have gone there earlier that day and buried the gems beforehand. But that was Mac, the notoriously stupid genius. Dylan glanced over at his friend, full of mixed emotions. Mac didn't seem to be giving it any more thought. 
He looked bothered, but Dylan knew it was just because Matt couldn't handle prolonged silence. Greeb, as much as we love watching you fly the ship, it might be helpful to know what is so crazy about the dagger key Dylan stole. Dylan shot him a look. I mean, borrowed, Matt quickly corrected. Greeb peeled his eyes away from the map so that he could adjust the ship and keep them on course. That key activates the drum rock, he said without looking back at them. The drum rock is an ancient bomb that is said to be powerful enough to wipe out half of Under-Earth. It was forged by our elders during the Shadow Wars, but the conflict ended before it could be used, thank the light. Once a peace deal was made, both armies agreed to bury the weapon so no one could find it and use it. The key was hidden separately. That was a long time ago. Many Ryanites have started to believe the drum rock does not really exist. It has been many generations since the Shadow Wars shook the earth. But that, he nodded to the dagger now in Dylan's tool belt, is the key from the paintings. I am sure of it. But what if Kai only had the key? Dylan asked. It's possible he doesn't have the drum rock, right? It is. But Kai's sudden urgency in rising to the surface would suggest otherwise. He must have the drum rock or he would not be so bold in storming the surface prematurely. He will use it to erase all life on the surface. That much is clear. The kids looked at each other nervously. Mora's bright blue eyes were full of fear, something Dylan wasn't used to seeing in them. She leaned on her spear and its point glowed. Then the surface will be safe so long as we have the key, she said, her usual confidence returning to her. Kai will have sent an entire riser battalion to find it, Grebe said, steering the ships around a mountain of ice that came into view in the headlights. He will know by now that we have it. We must get to the surface before they can find us. Somewhere, in the middle of a dark room, Kai sat on a tall yellow throne and smiled at the projections in front of him. Ryan was almost entirely cleared of hostiles, and the last of the Union soldiers were being pushed out of the city limits by his caped crusaders. Streets were all but abandoned. Crashed airships lay in burning heaps in the alleyways. Scenes of destruction reflected off the pristine walls of the crystal buildings. Satisfied, Kai pressed a button on his chair, and a large general with a square jaw appeared on the middle screen. General Cronus, I have been awaiting your report. Give me some good news, Kai said, the light from the projections illuminating his gaunt face. We are ahead of schedule, sir, the general replied, proudly puffing out his chest. All Union leaders have either been destroyed or are being held captive and any remaining opposition has been cornered in the outer ring. They are being gathered up as we speak. Good, good. You've done well, Kai said. Dispatch the drill ships and begin Operation Rise. General Cronus grinned and gave a slight bow. It would be my honor, sir. With a whip of his cape, the brawny man turned and gave the order to his commanders. A minute later, 
Kai turned his attention to another screen that showed hundreds of airships with enormous drill-bit noses lift off in the underground hangar. Kai raised his hands to the ceiling and laughed maniacally. <laughs> Rise! Back in Grebe's airship, Dylan and Mac were packing Union boomerangs from the Union ship as Grebe had instructed. The boomerangs were extra big and pearly white. Dylan wondered how the soldiers got them to burn so hot when they threw them. He remembered how easily they had sliced through the tentacles of the creature from the garbage lines. Mac was practicing his boomerang throwing stance. <laughs> Last time I threw one of these babies was during a business trip to Australia. <laughs> it never came flying back to me. It just smashed through the boardroom window and disappeared. Yeah, those investors weren't too impressed. Dylan tucked another boomerang into the bag. Mac, what's up? Dylan was struggling to find the right words. He'd felt like a total jerk ever since Mac had told him he'd brought those gems for him. Just thinking of how terrible he'd been treating his best friend made him feel too ashamed to even look him in the face. I'm sorry for everything. He finally looked up. Dude, there's no reason to apologize, Mac told him. I would have been sketched out too had you whipped out a handful of precious gems. Your reaction was definitely warranted. No, it wasn't. You were right. I've been too stubborn to accept your help and I should have just said yes sooner. Mac set down the bag. Look, I get it, man. I know what it feels like to want to earn your way. That's normal and good. It means you don't want to be a deadbeat. But you have to remember, there was some luck involved in me earning all that money, and I want to share my good fortune. You and your mom have done nothing but work hard, and have had terrible luck. Let me help, just a little. Mac measured something tiny with his fingers. Like, just a couple mil. Dylan laughed. That's not a little. We'll talk about it when we get back. I still can't believe you tried to plant buried treasure for me. I knew you couldn't resist a swashbuckling adventure. Mac packed the last boomerang and they both laughed. One ship over, in the cockpit, Grebe had set the ships to autopilot and was humoring Laney as she showed him her best tea Lee impression. I am a servant of the light, she said in a clipped tone. Do not make me destroy you. Grebe chuckled and raised an eyebrow at her. That is how Mora speaks. Not all Tealy speak that way. I certainly do not. But it sounded good? Laney asked hopefully. I want our enemies to think I'm a powerful servant of the light like her. Mora, who was rummaging through the cupboards in the back of the room, glanced over at her when she heard this. A look of surprise on her face. Young girl, Grebe said kindly, you do not need to pretend to be somebody you are not. The light shines differently on us all, and that is a good thing. Let your light shine. Be that girl who let go and caught all of those grub. If you spend too much time acting like you are someone else, somewhere else, you will lose yourself. Be present. Be you. Mora had stopped what she was doing and was now listening closely to their conversation. 
Acting like other people is who I am, Lainey said firmly. I like pretending to be other people in other places because it makes things more enjoyable or, in this case, bearable. Mora raised her eyebrows and suppressed a smile. Ever heard of Meryl Streep? Lainey continued. Grebe frowned. Well, she's an actress and she's pretended to be like a billion different people. And that woman wins awards for it. Yeah, that's just what some of us do on the surface. Acting is part of what I love about myself. I stand corrected, Grebe said, a grin stretching across his round face. And with that, he turned back to the controls and took the ships off autopilot. Laney stood next to him, a little taller, trying to think of what Meryl Streep impersonation she could use during their trip. Behind her, Mora took out her necklace with the big yellow jewel and looked it over. Its chain dangled from her pale fingers. The jewel glowed at her touch. Letting out a long breath, she put the necklace on and tucked it under her shirt. We're almost there, she heard her father call from the cockpit. She, Dylan, and Mac came running up to see rolling gray hills come into view in the ship's headlights. A warm orange light flickered on the horizon. The Volcano Foothills, Grebe announced, right where the map crystals said they would be. As the ships cruised over the rocky hills, everyone marveled at the strange gray and black rock formations that twisted out of the ground. Some looped up and down across the surface like giant serpents turned to stone, while others spiraled together to form rocky funnels. One, Mac noted, almost looked like a melting face. But the formations that really caught Mac's attention were the glowing blue pits. At first, they were small, nothing more than narrow cracks and holes full of blue light. But as they flew further across the foothills, the cracks and pits grew bigger and the blue light shone brighter. Soon they were close enough and wide enough to see into. Blue crystals, Mac mumbled to himself, mesmerized by the blue light. And then louder, Blue Crystal! Kai sat in his throne and continued to direct his generals on the battlefront. Occasionally, he changed the projected images around him or steered a long joystick by his knees. His red Nike sneakers bounced anxiously as he orchestrated his final preparations. He ordered his commanders to turn the Tealy Outer Ring villages into prisoner camps, where the remaining rebels were to be held. One of the prisoners, a member of the Union Special Council, shouted at the recording device being held by the Riser soldier. You're making a mistake, Kai, he yelled, struggling against the guards. You will destroy our people. Your people, Kai corrected. You brought this upon yourselves. Had you joined the Risers when we extended our hand, you would be by our side when we triumphantly rise and lay claim to our new world. It is not our time, the man cried, being roughly carried away into the camp. It is not our time. Doom befalls any who rise too early. Doom befalls those too weak to do what must be done, Kai shot back. <laughs> In an instant, all around the camp, hundreds of drill ships burst up out of the ground and soared into the air. Rock and debris rained down from their spinning drill bit noses, red hot and steaming. 
All the prisoners and guards stop to watch the fleet make their way towards the ceiling of Under-Earth. Kai watch their rise in absolute splendor. Almost home, he whispered to himself. That's blue crystal, Laney said, squinting down at the glowing blue crevices through the cockpit window. We've got to stop, Max said desperately. I'll be quick, I promise. Please, you guys. Mora dismissed the idea. We cannot stop now with the risers on our trail. She is right, Grebe agreed. It is not safe. We must continue on. Mac, you gotta let the crystal thing go, Laney said, putting a hand on his shoulder. Let's face it, you've already shown us you have plenty of gems. No! I need the blue crystal for my supercomputer. It's the only mineral that conducts the high levels of energy it needs to make it work. We have bigger things to worry about than your supercomputer, Mora snapped. Dylan gave Mac a sympathetic look and then glanced back at Mora. Maybe we can make just a quick stop, he suggested. In and out, like Max said. Mora turned on him. You cannot be serious. Why would you encourage such a ridiculous idea? Dylan was a little hurt by this, but stood firm. Come on, it's right here. Take us down and me and Mac will dig some out real quick. Mora looked at both Dylan and Mac in disbelief. This is that important to you? It is, Mac pleaded. Dylan nodded at Mora and she shook her head. Fine, but you only have two minutes. Whatever you can dig up in that time is what you are taking. Two minutes is plenty, Mac assured her. Mora nodded to her father. Take us down. Letting out an exasperated sigh, Grebe slowed the ships and landed them next to a deep crystal pit. With the pull of a lever, the exit door opened and everyone stepped out. On their way out, Grebe grabbed his glowing orange axe and Mora took her spear. Outside, the pit looked much bigger up close. It was as if the rocky hill had an enormous gaping mouth full of glowing blue fangs. Its bright blue light shone off the rock formations and cast long, twisting shadows across the hill. This should be easy, Dylan thought taking a mini shovel from his tool belt and walking up to the edge of the pit. A huge blue crystal jutted out near his foot. One blue crystal coming up. Dylan raised his shovel, aimed, and slammed it down. Crack! To his amazement, the crystal was left with not so much as a scratch. Come on, Dill, that was weak thoth, Max said. Let me see that thing. He took the shovel from Dylan, pulled it back like a baseball bat, and brought it down hard on the crystal. Crack! Then a few more times. Crack, crack, crack! Out of breath, he stopped and stared down at the crystal. As if taunting him, it somehow looked even more perfect and shiny than before. Stupid crystal! Mac dropped to his knees and started yanking on the crystal as hard as he could, but it wouldn't budge. Mora noticed the yellow jewel on her necklace glowing under her shirt. Carefully, she took it out and looked at it. It shone brightly on the end of its chain. She held it up to her spear, and the spear tip started glowing too. Together, their pulsing light synchronized. Grebe walked over and put his arm around her. Your mother's necklace. 
I was not sure if you still had it. I will always have it, Mora said, staring into its light. Sometimes I feel like it is her way of communicating with me. There have been times when I have felt comforted and guided by it. She held it up and its glow grew brighter. A few feet away, the blue crystals in the pit also shone brighter. Tilting her head, Mora walked up to the pit and held the necklace over it. As she did, the pulsing glow of its jewel and the pit crystals synchronized. Transfixed, everyone looked at them in amazement. The boy is right. We are supposed to take some of this with us, Mora whispered, nodding to the blue crystals. She felt a surge of light fill her as the crystal's glow intensified. How are we going to get it out? Lenny asked. We could blast it with the ship's cannons, Max suggested. Or use those molten boomerangs, Dylan said. Grebe shrugged. My axe? No, Mora said quietly. This is something that only the light can do. Grebe shook his head. Bora, if you are thinking of lifting into that pit, I forbid it. You could die. This isn't digging into dirt or even rock. We know nothing of these crystals. If you try to break through and are not strong enough, they could... This is the way, Mora interrupted. She held out her hand to show him that it was practically glowing. A faint blue light shimmered above her skin. As a servant of the light, I must heed its call. The pulsing light from her necklace, spear, and crystals grew faster. Everyone stepped back as she turned to face the pit. Slowly, she set down her spear, closed her eyes, and took a long, deep breath. When her eyes opened, they were glowing blue. They stared down into the pit. Crack! In a blinding flash of light, she was gone. The pit rumbled, the ground shook, and seconds later, light flashed again, and Mora was crouching down next to them, her skin glowing like a white-hot flame. The other kids shielded their faces. Gradually, the light dimmed and Mora stood. A foot-long blue crystal glowed in her hand and pulsed to the light of her necklace. Dylan and the others were speechless. Sweet mother of Juth, Mac mumbled. You did it! He ran up and gave her a big bear hug, which Mora was clearly uncomfortable with, so he pulled away. Mora, you are officially my biggest hero. Oh, it used to be a tie between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, but you, Blue, just blew them out of the water. I'm going to the moon, baby! He took the huge crystal from her and kissed it all over. Dylan smiled at Mora. Wow, he said. Mora smiled back. Do not act so surprised. I have done similar things before. Not through blue crystal you haven't. Grebe hurried over to make sure she was okay. Finding no scrapes or scratches, he let out a sigh of relief and mumbled a tealy prayer of gratitude. He looked at Laney. She is hot. There is a barrel of water in the back of the ship. I got it. Laney nodded and ran for the ship. On her way there, she slowed as she noticed big footprints in the dust. They had to be at least three times as long and wide as her feet. In the light of the glowing pit, she could see a trail of prints leading back to Grebe's ship. 
Her stomach did a little flip. With some hesitancy, she glanced back at the group and then continued on. Back at the pit, Dylan was hugging Mora, who appeared much more comfortable with this embrace. Dylan was relieved to see that she was okay. You sure you're all right? He asked her, stepping back. I am fine, Mora assured him. To Dylan, Mora always seemed to have a glow about her, but this time it was different. Mora. Dylan held her shoulders and looked at her. Her freckles looked even darker against her glowing skin. Your light. Mora looked at herself. It is stronger, I know. Her eyes scanned the hills. There is something about this place. I say, Mac jumped in, putting his hands on his hips. This looks like a bejeweled tharlac. Mora and Dylan both gave him a clueless look. Oh, come on, it's the fanged pit off of Return of the Jedi. You know, the one that ate Boba Fett? Ringing any bells? Oh, man, you guys are hopeless. Just then, a scream pierced the air. Everyone turned to see a big, dark shadow holding Laney a few feet off the ground in front of the ship. Laney! Dylan shouted. He and the others ran to the ship and skidded to a stop in front of her. Their eyes widened. Light from Moore's necklace and spear illuminated the dark shadow that was holding Laney. A ten-foot-tall man, covered in long, dark hair and bulging with muscle, held Laney effortlessly under one arm. The monster looked like a cross between a gorilla and a buffalo. The creature looked threatened. It jumped back when they ran up to it. Bearing its yellow fangs, it roared and Laney screamed. Sasquatch! Max shouted. Laney's scream faded as she fainted, her body going completely limp over the beast's arm. Dylan felt a zing of panic shoot through him. Mac was right. Bigfoot was real. The monster poked at Laney's limp head and seemed surprised she was no longer conscious. Mora's spear glowed as she aimed it at the creature and ready to attack. Wait, Greep said suddenly. He lowered his axe and pushed down Mora's spear. Squinting at the beast, he carefully stepped towards it. We will not hurt you, he said. Dylan, Mac, and Moore looked at each other confused. Panting, grunting, and quickly glancing between them, the beast was clearly just as terrified of them as they were of it. It is okay, Greep said to it. We are friends. Greep, who was a large man himself, looked like a toddler standing next to the creature. He glanced over his shoulder at the kids. The lower ones, he whispered. Dylan's heart raced. The lower ones? They were alive? Now that he was up close, the creature did look a lot like the Sasquatch skeletons and statues they'd seen. But even those didn't do this creature justice. He and Max stood there petrified in its presence. Friends, the beast grunted, looking suspiciously between them and sleeping Laney. Grebe nodded. Friends of lower ones, yes. Lower ones, the beast repeated. Its voice was incredibly deep and guttural, its words half-formed. Please, Greep said slowly, set her down. She is friend. The huge creature considered Laney's limp body one last time, 
before setting her down like a little doll. Friend, down, it said, its enormous puffing chest calming. Thank you. Gree put his hand on his chest. We are from Ryan. Have you heard of that place? The beast's breaths quickened and it bared its teeth. <laughs> Ryan. Mora firmed her grip on her spear, but Grebe waved her away. No, 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 we are Teely from Ryan, Grebe clarified, seeing how agitated the beast had become at the mere mention of the capital city. To everyone's relief, the beast calmed itself once again and then pointed to Mora. Servant. Grebe nodded. She is a servant of the light, yes. This seemed to really put the beast at ease. His big, frowning brow finally relaxed. Grebe put a hand on his chest. I am Grebe. The beast patted itself on the chest twice and replied, Ungra. Ungra, Grebe said, bowing his head respectfully. Are there more of you here? Ungra grunted and muttered something in a guttural tone. With one massive dark finger, he pointed to a shadowy hole in the ground next to the ships. A creature of Ungra's size would have to crawl into it. Steam billowed up from it. Gree pointed to the cave. There are more of you underground? More lower ones? <laughs> more lower ones underground. Ungra grunted, gesturing underground with his huge hands. Incredible, Mora whispered. Ask it about the battle. Ungra's big, curious yellow eyes bounced between Mora and her father. They found bones from a battle between the Lower Ones and the Ryanites, Grebe said. Do you know what happened? Ungra thought for a moment, and then realizing what they were referring to, answered, <laughs> Too cold. Rise. Want peace. Ryan, no want. They kill us. It patted its chest. Go underground. Hide. Wait. I am sorry, Grebe sighed. I can only imagine the horrors your people have experienced. You will be pleased to hear that Ryan is no more. It is all but destroyed. Ungra's brow raised in surprise. Ryan, gone. That is right. You do not need to hide anymore. Ungra looked very relieved to hear this. I imagine you will want to tell the others, Grebe said, and Ungra nodded. Others from below rise to our lair. Grebe paused. Are you saying there are layers below your lair? Ungra nodded and gestured multiple layers on top of each other. And now the layer below you is rising up? Grebe asked. Ungra nodded again. Maybe it is time to rise, Grebe quietly pondered. We are going to the Noah Volcanoes so that we can rise to the next level. Are we close? 
<laughs> Volcanoes. <laughs> Ungra pointed over a nearby hill. Noah's <laughs> help. <laughs> Gree bowed. Thank you. We wish you and your people a brighter future. May the light shine on you. He looked back at the kids and nodded to the ship. Come on, we have no time to lose. As the kids carefully approached the ship and Gree bent down to scoop up Laney, the lower one's massive hand suddenly slammed against the ship next to them. Everyone jumped. Ungra grunted and held up a hand for them to wait. The others exchanged a look as he half-ran, half-knuckle-walked back into his cave. A moment later, he returned holding a long yellow crystal, almost exactly like the one from Moore's necklace. Grebe tried to reach for it, but Ungra pulled it back and then reached out to Mora. <laughs> Servants of the light. <laughs> Ungra nodded to the jewel on Mora's necklace. Mora bowed and took it from him. Thank you. Satisfied, Ungra stepped away and watched as the others boarded the ships and lifted off. As they flew away, Dylan and the others could see Ungra excitedly crawl back into the cave. The second Laney was set down in the cockpit, she opened her eyes and jumped to her feet. The others sprang back in surprise. Is it gone? she asked. Were you faking it the whole time? Max said in disbelief. I was acting, yes, Laney said, dramatically tossing her blonde hair. How did I do? Most impressive, Grebe chuckled. Acting, I see what you mean. Well done, Mora said with a subtle smile. That may have saved your life. How did you stay limp when he practically dropped you to the ground? Dylan asked. Yeah, that kind of hurt. But I fake fainted off a million chairs and once off the top bunk, so that was nothing. Meryl Streep would have been proud, Grebe said. Laney wasn't quite convinced. I don't know. I feel like it would have been a lot better had I put the back of my hand up to my forehead like this. Dylan and Mac rolled their eyes. Grebe steered the ships over the hill Ungra had shown them and set the course for the hazy orange glow up ahead. Mora quietly studied the large yellow jewel that was now pulsing in harmony to her necklace's glow. From the comfort of his throne, Kai watched the projection screens as the last of the rebels were rounded up into camps. Once the last prisoner was secured, General Cronus reported back. It is done, sir. Excellent. You have done well, Kai said. He leaned forward in his seat. Now... Destroy the city. The general hesitated. Master Kai, surely we don't want to destroy everything our people have worked so hard to build. What if we need to... General Cronus, Kai interrupted. Let me tell you a story I learned from above. On the surface, many years ago, there was a Spanish commander by the name of Captain Cortez. When he arrived at a new land with his men, he ordered them to burn the ships. Burn the ships, sir? You see, Cronus, when the ships are burned, there is no turning back. They had to carry on no matter what. We must carry on no matter what. There will be no turning back. 
Today we rise and fulfill our destiny. Kai's smile turned down into a sinister scowl. Destroy the city. As you wish. General Cronus swallowed. Sir, before I give the order, may I confirm your location? My lieutenant could not find you in your quarters or in the bunker. I want to be sure you are well clear of the destruction. Kai grinned. I am far, far from the city, brother. Your concern is noted. Destroy the city and begin the dig. I will have further orders for you on the surface. Surprised and a little confused, the general turned and gave the order to his commanders. Within minutes, airships filled the sky of Underearth. Kai watched in delight as they shadowed the city and released a fiery storm of cannonballs on the buildings. In great clouds of fire and smoke, the magnificent crystal city came shattering down. Kai flipped off the projections and turned on the lights, revealing an airship cockpit. From his throne, he gazed out the ship's window where the distant blue glow of the volcano foothills was coming into view. Using the joystick by his knees, he steered the ship towards it. You can't be far, little ones. You can't be far. High above the crumbling city of Ryan, the hole Mora had patched in the under-earth ceiling moved a few times and then split. Hiking boots broke through and dangled from the muddy ceiling. Slowly lowering down from a rope, a cave rescuer emerged and took a look around, his headlamp's beam shining through the vast darkness of Underearth. He froze when he saw the exploding crystal city below and the rising drill ships around him. With shaking hands, he raised a walkie-talkie to his face. Um, guys, I found something. Hey, Rocketeers, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Digger. Things are getting crazy. I can't wait to get to the climax of the story. It's going to be so cool. I hope you guys like it. I'm going to take a second to give some shout-outs to some patrons. Joseph and Ronan, thank you guys for listening. And Toby and Henry from Calgary, I know you guys love Digger. I hope you like that episode. Thank you guys for being patrons. And Connor, Levi, Lucas, and Nora from Parker, Colorado. You guys, I used to live in Castle Rock, Colorado. Minutes from you guys. Crazy. And Lucy, Ethan, and little Rowan from Maine. Oh, I want to go check out Maine. Lucky Ducks. If you haven't heard yet, Rocketeers, the Purple Rocket Podcast is on Patreon. Sign up. You can get ad-free episodes, bonus content, extra exclusive stories, and more. So check it out. Look for the Purple Rocket Podcast on Patreon.com. 
And thank you all so much for listening. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get the show. If you have a favorite story, share it with your friend. Spread the word. And keep tuning in, Rocketeers. Till next time, this is your host, Greg Webb.